Well, I have um, I burned as much time as I possibly could before I came to Romans chapter 11. So now I guess we've got to deal with it. Uh, let's look at Romans 11. And, um, you know, what we're dealing with and what we've been dealing with in Romans um, 8, 9, 10, and now 11 is high and lofty stuff. And this is, this is kind of ground that we need to come to with utmost reverence and submission, letting the Word shape us, letting God through His Word speak to us. And um, that's how we really need to deal with this, because uh, the questions that are being raised by Paul and the questions that are being raised by um, ourselves are tough questions. Um, it, it, does God still have a plan for the nation of Israel? Um, are the Jews, the physical Jews, still God's people? Are all Jews going to be saved one day? All these questions are, are, are tough questions because Paul has made clear to us that it's not uh, the physical Jew, but it's the, the one who is the child of the promise that is the true Israelite, and yet he keeps going back to Israel. And so as we come to this, um, this is, I think, the best approach, and that is to hold it here and us to be very low. And that's what I'm attempting to do, and I hope you're sensing that. Um, that I'm not coming to this saying, oh man, I've been to seminary and I've been in ministry and I understand this and you better... No. This is high and lofty stuff. And so let's look at it now. Romans chapter 11. Paul says, I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah? How he appeals to God against Israel. Lord, they have killed your prophets, they have demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace... But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened as it is written. God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear, down to this very day. And David said, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. So I asked, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Now, I'm speaking to you Gentiles, and as much then as I'm an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous. And this, and, and really thus, save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others, and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, 
Remember, it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief. But you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but stand in awe. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and severity of God. Severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off, and even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut off um, from what is by nature a wild olive tree, and grafted, contrary to nature, into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? Lest you be wise in your, um, your own conceits, I want you to understand this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob, and this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As regards the gospel, they are enemies of God for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient, in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience, that he may have mercy on all. Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor, or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we need you to come. And we need you to illumine your scriptures with your spirit that we might see and understand what you intend for us to understand. But Father, more than that, we need to conclude with Paul's conclusion. And that is hands raised, head bowed, and hearts full of worship and adoration at the mystery surrounding your ways. Oh, Father, I pray that you would drive us to deeper worship, not skepticism. I pray, oh God, that you would use this word, this chapter of your holy word, to unite us together by faith and not to divide us in small and trite arguments about the details. Father, I pray that we at Downtown Church would be a people that are willing to let you be God And that, Father, you would send your spirit right now to draw into your fold those who do not yet believe. And I pray you would revive that those that say they do believe and do believe. Spirit of Christ, be at work among us. We need you. I desperately need you. So come now. Give us understanding. Give us faith. Give us salvation for the glory of Christ. 
Amen. I read an article uh, this week about a couple of guys that, that pitched tents in front of the Best Buy somewhere in Ohio a week and a half before Black Friday. Because they wanted to go into Best Buy and get the best deal they could on whatever it was they wanted to buy. We have a friend, Rachel and I have a friend who follows Chick-fil-A around the south and the southeast because um, anytime a Chick-fil-A opens a new store, if you're one of the first 100 people, you get Chick-fil-A for a year. Now, I may have just created a monster. Everybody's going to Google, all right, Chick-fil-A opening. You can camp for days and you can have Chick-fil-A free for a year. I was watching the Today Show uh, one morning this week, and Enrique Iglesias was on. And uh, they interviewed a couple of guys on the front row there in Rockefeller Plaza who had been camping out, waiting for the Enrique Iglesias concert. When we come to this tough issue of election and predestination that Paul has been hammering now since chapter 8, There's something in us that arises that says, well, what about the people that are camping out for God? What about the people that want in? And and God stands there and He says, well, no, you're not predestined. What we've seen up to this point is a lot of biblical truth that must guide our thinking about predestination and election. Because you see, these are not churchy words, these are Bible words. We said, how in the world can you, can you deny that the Bible teaches predestination and election because he has been bringing it up over and over and over again. It is all throughout the Bible. The only question is, are we going to think biblically about what the Bible says? And so as we come to this uh, chapter 11, we can't just look at chapter 11 alone. We've got to look at it. We can't just isolate it, but we have to kind of bring it into the rest of what Paul is saying in Romans and in the rest of the Scriptures. Because that's when we get in danger, when we isolate one or two things, one of the Bible writers say, and don't put it in the context of God's Word that is one complete message from beginning to end with one complete offer, uh, author, and that is God Himself. And so if we look just back in, in chapter 10 and verse 9, we see that predestination and election does not um, mean that, that we cannot receive the gospel. In fact, Paul, in the middle of talking about these deep truths of, of, of election, says this. He said, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, what? You will be what? Saved. And so for Paul, there wasn't, you know, man's choosing and God's electing were not two separate things, and you've got to believe one over the other. In the midst of this teaching, he says, this is it. Repent and believe the gospel. Bow your knee to the one true God and receive Him. But he's been telling us all throughout uh, Romans, and we see it all throughout the Bible as well, that we can't do that alone. Remember Romans chapter 3. He said what? There is no one who is righteous. No, not one. And then he said this. And why did he say this? We see now. 
He said, you remember this? No one seeks after God. No, not one. And why did he tell us that? Because here we are in chapters 8, 9, 10, and 11 looking at election. And so what we're to do is to take this teaching and, and put it in line with everything else he's been saying and go, oh, I get it. So the picture is not God offering salvation, but we've got, you know, people camping out trying to receive salvation, but him kind of standing over all of these willing participants saying, "Eh, I guess, you know, I'll choose you, but I'm not going to choose you. No, that's not the picture. The picture is radically different. No one is seeking God. The parking lot is empty. The grand opening is happening and nobody's camping out. And so what, what does God do? He goes after His people. And He woos them to Himself. That's the picture of Ephesians chapter 2. Listen. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, He made us alive together with Christ. It is by grace you've been saved. And then He raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. You see, I mean, how did we end in chapter 10? If you just flick back, you see in chapter 10 and verse 21, Paul says this, but, but of Israel, God says, all day long I've held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. Why is God engrafting the Gentiles? Because Israel is stiff-arming him. Israel is using their own free will. God is not making them. He's giving them over to their own free will to reject Him. And so, in some mysterious and yet completely um, righteous and holy way, God is going after the Gentiles to somehow make the Jews envious to save them all, both Jew and Gentile alike. The biblical perspective is this. God gets the victory God gets the victory over his stubborn, unbelieving people. But what do you do with all these promises in the Scripture to Israel? That's where we are today. And let me just remind you, the goal of this sermon is to get us to the end where we're saying, oh, not get to the end to say, oh, the depths and the wisdom of the past theologians. (laughs) Oh, I'm in this camp. It's to say, oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. That's where Paul lands. I pray to God that's where we land. So let's look at it. What, there's some things we can definitely know, and then we've got to deal with the things that we can't definitely know. So how do we deal with the things that we know, and what are those? And then how do we deal with the things that we don't know? And yet God, I mean, that's what Paul does. He just brings us into this ridiculous mystery. So how do we deal with that? Well, let's deal with what we do know. First of all, what what we can learn from these verses is that what looks hopeless is never hopeless with God. What looks hopeless is never hopeless with God. And we have a hard time believing that. Your pastor does. 
least this one. I was in a coffee shop meeting with somebody in the last couple of weeks that I hadn't seen in about eight years. They're not a member of this church. And they came to put before me um, a tough decision and a bunch of issues going on in their lives that they wanted some guidance on. And it was about 3.30 in the afternoon, and I don't know if I was just tired. I don't know if it was one of those weak moments where you really want to be liked more than you want to give somebody the truth. You ever been there? Or I don't know if it was one of those moments where my heart just didn't believe the gospel. It just wasn't fresh and beautiful to me. I don't know what it was. But I found myself, as she talked, I knew the answer to what she was saying. I knew I needed to tell her, look, friend, you have a heavenly Father, and He wants you to fall in His arms just to the extent that you're trying to control your situation to the extent that, 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 that you're trying to manipulate the outcomes, He wants you to take that effort and look to Him and say, God, fight for me. He wants you to come and, and, and to repent of all of your control issues and say, Jesus, you're my only hope. I, I bow and I give myself to you. But that's not exactly what I told her. You know, I found myself wanting to say and, and saying things like, you know, I, I, He's got to work out. Oh, that's kind of right, I guess. All things work to the good for those who love God. And I gave her a little bit of Jesus, but, but I walked away from that, and I knew in my own heart of hearts that I did not say what I felt God wanted me to say. I don't know about you, but I have a feeling I do know about you. That's the struggle of the Christian life. To believe God when it's tough to believe God. To put yourself out there and say, follow Jesus. When in your own heart you're going, man, I'm following Jesus and I'm just not very joyful this afternoon. You see, that is where Paul is in a real way. He asked the question, has God rejected his people? Now why does he ask that? Because that's where the church is emotionally. That's where they are. They're thinking, has God rejected Israel? Has God rejected His people? I mean, it's a question that, that should haunt us, in a sense. But then He answers it, by no means. And you see what's going on. I mean, you have this church full of Gentiles, and they're looking at the, the, the revealed Word of God, and they're seeing that God chose a, a nation, Israel, and yet those are the very people that killed the Messiah. And those are the very people who are trying to kill them. And so they're saying, well, if God told Israel that, that, he was, yeah, that they were his people, and now he's telling us that we are, can we trust him? Has God rejected his people? And Paul is coming in and he's saying, listen, church, you must believe even though the circumstances around you don't give you the evidence to believe. Because God is still God. Can you believe that, church? That's what Paul is saying. And yet how hard it is. I'll never forget standing at the bedside of a 19-year-old boy, Ole Miss student, who had just been slammed to the ground, horsing around with his friends right before spring break. He was paralyzed from the neck down. His family is sitting around the bed, and I walk in and I look at that boy, and he's in the headgear because he can't control his head, and it needs to be kept still. 
And it took everything in me to pray for healing. Because why? Because if God doesn't respond, how does that make God look and how does it make me look? I've gone into the emergency room and I've, I've stood before a young woman whose husband just died in a car wreck and she was coming too and she didn't know that yet and I've had to tell her that her husband was dead. And I've had to tell her and point her in that moment to the faithfulness and the goodness of God. And I want you to know it is not easy because the circumstances that are there are not supporting it. And yet what Paul is telling us is that when things are hopeless, that's when we need to hold on to a God who can make nothing out of something. That is precisely the moment that we don't need to lean on rational arguments, but we need to remember the divine grace that saved us. The, the, the power of God Himself by His Spirit that redeemed our hearts to believe for the first time and has been renewing us and never forsaking us from that moment on and give the same message to them. You see, friends, Paul is calling us to believe and to give the message of the gospel when it's hard. It's where we all live. It's hard to go to our marketplace, our jobs, and say, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. It's hard to go to the streets and say, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. Why? Because money, sex, beauty, power... All the things that we all look to and believe that if we just possess will give us the very thing that Christ promises to give us seems much more palatable, seems much more attractive than the message of if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. It is tough. And yet Paul does it. He says, look at me. (laughs) He said, look. Guys, I, I'm a descendant. God, God saved me. I'm a Jew. I, I'm a Benjamite. That, that means I'm a, I'm a child of Jacob. That means I'm a child of Isaac. That means I'm a child of Abraham. I, you, you don't get any more Jewish than me. And look at me. Yes, I once persecuted the church, but now I preach the glorious Christ. And I, and I lift high the cross of Jesus. And, and I preach Him and I preach Him alone. So look at me. Yes, Israel is in shambles. The Jews are running far away, but God is still at work. Do you see it? Don't look at what all the bad things that are happening. Look at what God is doing. Because He's always at work. And if you don't believe me, Paul says, then look at Elijah. He goes on and gives the illustration of Elijah. He said Elijah felt like he was the only or the last faithful one in all of Israel. And yet, what did God do? He came to Elijah and said, Elijah, look, I know that the altars have been crushed. I know that all the prophets have been killed. But guess what? I have 7,000 people that I'm, I'm holding to the side. I am at work, even though it doesn't seem as if I'm at work. So what is the message to you and me? God is at work, and it doesn't care what you see, and it doesn't care what you believe. He is at work. So speak His name and walk by faith. 
This is what Paul puts before the people of God. When it's hopeless, it's not hopeless with God. What person do you need to believe this gospel for? What situation do you need to believe this gospel for? Where are you being timid right now? Paul says there's hope when there's hopelessness. Secondly, we learn that God's electing grace has practical implications for how we regard others. This whole message of predestination, election, is really the message of sovereign grace. We were running far, God not on our minds, God comes after us and saves us. All of grace from beginning to end. Well, if you believe that, it has implications. I saw that yesterday. I went to an extremely important meeting at Second Presbyterian Church, our mother church, if you will. Um, a man by the name of Stephen Haynes has written a book uh, entitled The Last Segregated Hour. And it chronicles, he's the, the head of religion and ethics, I believe, or at least religion at uh, Rhodes College. Stephen Haynes is. And he wrote this book chronicling or giving the history of the kneel-in movements of the 60s. And if you don't know what the kneel-in movements are, let me tell you. It, it was a time when big white churches, and probably small white churches too, in the South, and let's just confine it right here to our city, had written policies of segregation. They would not allow black people to come in unless they were truly from Africa. They would allow their African missionaries to come into the sanctuary, but they wouldn't allow American um, African Americans to come in. Written policies. Second Presbyterian Church had one of those written policies. A man by the name of, of Joe Purdy, um, 18, 19-year-old young African American student at Rhodes College, went to, with, with a white friend as well, went to Second Presbyterian Church, and he was stopped at the door. And so... He came back the next Sunday with about 30 of his friends that heard the story, and they came and they were all blocked out. And they simply knelt and prayed quietly, very peaceful, very quietly. Well, what that did is it, it, it put pressure on Second Press to have to deal with their written policy of segregation. And so they had a vote before the congregation. And before that vote was taken, 12 of their leaders left the church, and some of them formed another church called Independent Presbyterian Church. Yesterday, those who were still alive and could come that were part of the kneel-in movement, the African-Americans and white students, came together with leaders and members of both Second Pres and Independent Pres in the sanctuary of Second Pres. Stephen Haynes stood up and he gave about a 45-minute outline of the kneel-in movement. And he, he showed letters uh, from elders that I know, because <laughs> I grew up at Independent Presbyterian Church. And, it, uh, you know, it, it was painful. I mean, his presentation was painful. And, and, and Richie Sessions of Independent and, uh, and leaders from Second got up. Michael Rhodes spoke. It was amazing because he was a child of Second Pres. And they all spoke. And then Joe Purdy's sister mounted the podium. And I don't think anybody in that room <laughs> was at ease. 
because we had just heard in a very mixed setting some of the, the worst that the Memphis church has to give. And she stood in that pulpit, and her lips dripped with grace and Jesus and the cross and reconciliation. She had the power to destroy her audience. And yet she stood up and basically said, the cross is bigger and there is power in the blood of Jesus. And what she did in that moment yesterday was she revealed that she didn't that, that the doctrine of grace was not just some doctrine in a book that people have written about, but it had sunk deep to the very core of the marrow of her bones. And it drove even the deepest bitterness and anger and hurt. And it overruled it. And what came out was forgiveness and grace and mercy. And friends, do you understand that that's the context of the Jews and the Gentiles? They hated each other. They would not eat together. I've told you before that Gentiles would let a Jewish mother die in childbirth rather than help her. You think that we had problems, and we do in the South. No doubt, the history's horrible, but guess what? Jesus is bigger And that's what Paul is saying. What needs to be the DNA of the believer is is a deep understanding of the grace and mercy of Christ. The fact that we were running far away from God, but He came after us. And if we believe today, it's all of grace. And if we are Gentiles and not Jews, which I would assume 98, if not 100% of those in this room are Gentiles and don't have a Jewish lineage then you have to realize that you're in, you getting in is even a bigger part of grace. You're an olive shoot, man. You're not even the root. You're not even the branch. You're just some gnarly little shoot off the side. <laughs> and we should come here and worship and camp out because we can't wait to worship because we're an olive shoot of the branch of Jesus Christ. That's what he's saying. See, their implications. Listen to verses 18 through 21. Do not be arrogant toward the branches. Who are you arrogant toward? The church has been arrogant for too long. The pastor of Westboro Church died this week, and so many have rejoiced because he... I'm not saying I rejoice. I'm saying others have rejoiced. Why? Because he, he led um, um, the boycotts of soldiers... And those in the homosexual lifestyle at their funerals. He felt like he was called to to condemn. But what we see here is don't be arrogant toward the branches, toward people unlike you. If you are, remember it's not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. In other words, God turned, God kind of judged them. Yeah, that's right, but that's, that's God's job is what he's saying. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief, but, but don't respond to it by saying, oh, we're the American church now. Look at us. No. He's saying, no, 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 no. You stand fast through faith. Do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. You see, Paul is calling them to posture themselves before God and the world in all humility. Is that what you do? 
dear friends, if you feel arrogant, if you feel superior to anybody, whether it's a person living on the street or the person on the street feeling superior to someone living in a house on the bluff because they don't live on the street, whatever it is, whatever superiority, whatever arrogance you may have toward one another, it is unfounded because the only reason that God loves you is because He chose to love you. There was nothing lovable about you. You were His enemy. And in that moment, He chose to love you and give His own Son to make you His son or daughter. Dear friend, do you understand that that's the gospel of Jesus Christ? And isn't it beautiful? And that's what we see working out here. I don't understand all the ins and outs of why God said no to Israel for a time. And, and, and does that mean that, you know, him saying that all will be saved in here, does that mean that you mean all the Jews? No, because anybody who's going to be saved must confess Christ as Lord. So it's not that God has a plan, you know, he's got a gospel for the Jews and he's got a gospel for the Christians. No, there's one gospel. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord, you believe in your heart God raised Him from the dead, then you will be saved. Your birthright will not save you. So what does this mean? It means if you're in the kingdom today, thanks be to God and to Him alone. And then lastly and very shortly, how do we deal with the mystery how do, we, how do we end in worship when we have all these questions? Well, who are the elect? How do I know if I'm elect? What? Let me tell you. This is how we need to think about it because God keeps His Word. That's our third point. God keeps His Word and you can trust it. All right? But here's how we need to think about it. Uh, at my house right now, we are planning a wedding for our daughter Amy Catherine. Uh, but let me correct myself. We are not planning a wedding. My wife is planning a wedding. But I have been to meetings with florists and caterers and event centers and all these things. And, and, and here's the problem. My wife is planning a wedding. But I'm a starter and I'm a doer. And so as I'm listening to everybody, you know, my job description is to listen, to be quiet, to be agreeable. But what I find myself doing is, is forming an opinion. And as I'm forming an opinion, I hear the Spirit of God saying, uh, 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 you know better. You know your place. Just shut up. Don't do it. But then I hear my flesh saying, you're a man. You're the head of the household. You're no fool. My mouth will open. I'll say something. And it's like the whole, the earth stops on its axis. And all the women will look at me. And in that moment, I will know. Sorry. Sorry. I I didn't mean it. And they'll go back to doing what they're doing. So how in the world then... Does a marriage survive the planning of a wedding? Love and trust and a husband shutting up. <laughs> Paul has been laying out for us the deep 
truths of God. And he has led us to a point where we can lie awake at night, wringing our hands, asking these questions, being troubled in spirit by all of this. But that is not where Paul ended. Now remember at the beginning of the sermon I said, we must let God's word guide us and not our emotions. And if Paul ended in worship, then we can end in worship. But how can we end in worship? The same way that I can stand back and I can know that I could spend the next 150 years trying to understand how my wife plans a wedding and I would never get it. And, and, And our relationship will thrive and we will have a beautiful wedding to the degree that I shut my mouth And I say, God has put you in this position and you have understanding that I don't have. And I walk on holy ground around her with my mouth shut. And that's exactly what we must do with God. He speaks of things of which we will never understand until until glory. If there is a preacher who will stand before you and give you a diagram of how this all plays out, do not listen to him or her. Do not listen to him. Because Paul couldn't even understand. He finally just gives up. He throws up his hand and says, Oh, well, I just know I love you. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are your judgments. And his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known your mind? Who has been your counselor? Who's ever given to you? Not me. Not me. So I don't know how it's going to play out, God. I don't understand all the inner workings. All I can do is preach the gospel and live the gospel and fight sin and build his kingdom and love my neighbor and lay my life down for others and know that you've got it under control and you have it figured out. So praise be to you that I don't have to figure it out. And dear friends, that's where we must be. And you say, that's just a cop-out, Richard. Well, then Paul chooses the cop-out because that's where he ends it. And that's where we're going to end it this morning. Do you know Jesus to that degree where the cross of grace is so powerful to you that you can step back and say, I don't have to be God because you are. Thank you, Father, that you have these things in your hands. Help me to be faithful. Give me more and more and increasing understanding, but only that I might love you more and I might love my neighbor more as well. Praise be to God. Father, we thank you for your mercy. and We thank you for your tenderness. Would you come now by your Spirit and lead us to that place of submission and adoration and worship. Oh God, may we glory in you that you've got it figured out. And we thank you that you were sovereign over our lives and we pray that you would do a huge work in our hearts that we might be joy-filled, worshipful men and women, boys and girls of God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.